0: This is Steve Stein. Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm just back from a trip to Northern India where I spent time with a handful of individuals that can only be described as mavericks. As the Inside Asia podcast tagline promises, we're here to bring you insights from the region's top movers, shakers, thinkers, and provocateurs. Well, stay tuned. We're ready to take that promise to a whole new level. But first, the topic weighing on all our minds, coronavirus. The airwaves and news feeds are rife with COVID-19 tales of plight and peril. It's no joke. In fact, it could be argued that not since the heady days of World War II have we seen such a dramatic global response to a crisis in the making. Some of our listeners might recall the conversation I had with Ben Rolfe in November from last year. In the first half of our discussion, we celebrated his organization's efforts to combat and largely eradicate malaria in the region. But we also discuss the inevitable rise of other infectious and contagious diseases. It's a spooky harbinger of the dawning of COVID-19. You can listen to this conversation by visiting us on our website at www.insideasiapodcast.com. We spoke again in February, this time from an isolation chamber at the Singapore Center for Infectious Diseases. Ben reached out while in confinement, telling me how he had returned from a trip to Thailand and, not feeling well, presented himself to the authorities. From his hospital bed, he shares with us his frontline experience and the Singapore response to the outbreak. A week later, he was released. Hundreds of others, however, haven't been so lucky. That was a month ago, Since then, coronavirus has run rampant, and just days ago, the World Health Organization declared the virus a global pandemic. As other news services generate updates on the spread of the disease, government response, and ways to prevent and protect oneself, we plan to offer our listeners a number of unique perspectives on the broader implications of the pandemic. In coming weeks, we'll feature guests detailing ways in which Asia-based corporations and organizations are responding. We'll also take a look at how this pandemic could forever reshape the way we work. And in one fast-paced episode with Dr. Bruce Lipton, author of the best-selling book, Biology of Belief, we'll explore the science of the brain and the inherent power of the mind to determine health and happiness in a time of suffering. All this and much, much more. How we as a global community step up and respond to this crisis will forever speak to our ability to unite and collaborate as a species. If ever there was a time to look past vested interests, shelve political differences, and exhibit empathy, this is it. As Winston Churchill once famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Time to heed the call. There's something to be learned from our current circumstances, and to kick things off in this episode, we feature Dane Chamorro, Senior Partner at Control Risks. The firm's charter is to help organizations succeed in a volatile world, and nothing has created volatility more than the coronavirus. I kicked off our conversation by asking Dane to characterize risk as it relates to corporate and government decision-making. Dane Chamorro, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. No, thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. We have a lot to discuss and about 30 minutes to do it. Uh, and it's all about this wonderful, meaty subject called risk. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what you do in the field of risk? So
1: Control Risk is a international
0: consultancy, mm-hmm. and we help our clients
1: uh, deal with various types of risk, political risk, regulatory risk, integrity risk, uh, crisis, cyber risk. Um, Right now, we're helping a lot of people, as you might expect, manage the effects and the fallout of the virus, the COVID virus crisis, and what that means for them from a from an employee perspective, from a supplier perspective, from a supply chain perspective, from a governmental perspective.
0: Which is why we're here right now. So let's talk about that. What are uh, some of the observations as you move around the region, have conversations with organizations, how are they contending with the risk of coronavirus?
1: So as you you might expect, it varies depending on the type of organization. Uh, The one thing that I'm always surprised by is this belief, uh, and you see it in the media a lot, that. Oh, this is a black swan that you know we couldn't have predicted this. Actually, we've been predicting it for for quite a while, of some kind—not COVID itself, but some kind of you know epidemic, pandemic, right? Because it's happened before.
0: When when you say we, in terms of the warning signs have been out there, but have corporations been heeding them?
1: Not not so much the warning signs specifically, but we know that the the way these things are are gestated, that 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 underlying environment hasn't gone away, right? And that particularly comes from the way that. Um, livestock live animals are consumed in China right that was the origin of SARS it's not just China but it's a it's a good example and um, you know people say oh well we couldn't have expected this This is a black black swan and the last time this happened was SARS and that was you know 17 years ago I'm like well if you think about how long Asia has been a center of production for the rest of the world that goes back at least 25 years so that's a generation Mm -hmm. and if you look at it in that time frame Actually, on average, every five years, you have something that people would say is a black swan happening, right? Sometimes a little bit less than five, sometimes a little more. You start with Asian financial crisis. You go on to 9-11, you go on to SARS, you go on to the Bali bombings, you go on to the global financial crisis. You go on to the floods in Thailand and the Fukushima earthquake and tsunami. Mm. You go on to the uh, election of President Trump and the decision on day two, I think it was, to leave TPP, mm. the trade war with China, mm. and now this. So you know what we see is that resilient organizations um, are, resilience is a bit like a muscle. You have to practice it, and you can practice mm. it. And if you practice it, it doesn't really matter what challenge is thrown at you, local, global, whatever, you deal with it well if you don't practice, if you believe that, oh, this will never happen again, or oh, nothing like this will ever happen again, then you're not prepared. Mm. And you're a bit like an athlete that's out of shape, right? Yeah. And the, the the key to that kind of resilience is what what we call kind of anticipation and reaction. So as an organization, you have to be able to anticipate these types of shocks, external shocks, to the, syst- to the corporate system, the corporate entity. And then And so you need a a system, an organizational system, by which you can bring in various forms of information, you have a team analyzing that, you can see where the red flags may be, uh, the warning signs, the triggers. And then you also have to be able to react. You need both parts. Mm. Just knowing it is not enough. You also, as an organization, have to react, and that's react, and that's very difficult. Typically what that means is you have a, a small team of people at the top, who are fed this, it's a bit like a governmental intelligence structure, who are fed this information, they decide what to do, and then they, for the organization as a whole, issue a plan of action. Here's what we're going to do next, It's very few organizations that actually have both of those pieces done well, but if you have both of those pieces done well, then your chances of of kind of riding out that shock is much better.
0: And and that's best practice, but uh, what what percentage of organizations across this region at least have something like that in place? Mm
1: very few. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and it probably wouldn't surprise you that the multinational ones, and I don't mean that in terms of jurisdiction, I mean that in terms of global uh, scope. So there are entities in Singapore and Japan that are multinational, obviously, operate multinational, uh, multinationally, because they operate across the globe. They've gone through a series of shocks, and so they tend to learn that almost. Again, it's a bit like muscle memory. The smaller organization or the organizations that are only in one or two countries maybe they tend to not learn those lessons as well. Um, So it's typically the bigger, more global ones, not always, that, that, that tend to have a little bit better response
0: you know, back to that metaphor on fitness, um, the idea of uh, training that muscle, uh, which is a commitment. It's it's uh, it's a dedicated uh, practice. Uh, it feels instead of like going to the gym every day, it's like I'll do jumping jacks on Monday and call that fitness. Uh, a lot of tweaking going on. Um, so if a crisis occurs, I mean, I didn't see after the global financial crisis, a massive overhaul of the financial sector. Uh, after Fukushima, people didn't uh, end their dependence on, on nuclear energy. Um, I mean, I, I think that there sense tends to, well, let's just do a quick fix here and move on because we need to throw our resources into short-term gains. Is that your impression?
1: Yeah, I think there's a a bit, that's a bit of human nature, right? That Oh, thank God we've survived this uh, and now we're back to normal. Um, But to my point earlier, you know, it's only a couple of years typically before the next thing comes along. And if you haven't, you know, change your supply chains as an example so this is something we're seeing a lot of because China is such a big part of the industrial economy the world's workshop as they call it and a third of world trade we're now seeing a lot of our clients realizing that oh actually I assemble these products in Mexico or Poland or whatever but key inputs to three steps down the line actually come from China and you know what China is the only supplier so <clears throat> I think um, what you will see now as a result of this partly because of the trade war but but this is probably a a more uh, you know extreme shock to the system as uh, people reassessing those supply chains and saying oh okay actually we have to first of all dig back and really understand where all of these pieces come from mm-hmm. it's not about capacity this is about what actually goes into your products mm-hmm. and and ensure that that chain is resilient that value chain is resilient mm-hmm. and if that and resilient from a whole number of perspectives so if that means putting it in Poland so you have physical distance from China. That's one part of resilience. Obviously, another part of resilience is compliance. So are you uh, going to install, install, create, operate that factory in a compliant way? Can you do that in, you know, pick a jurisdiction? Some jurisdictions are easier than others. Mm. Um, So we've even seen that, you know, just going to neighboring countries from China. We have clients who are very, very Uh, accustomed to the Chinese environment, Chinese model, and they've been there for decades. right? Mm. And so they know how to operate in in the Chinese environment in a compliant way, which is not always easy because China's complicated, and it's gotten more complicated over time. Um, Go to Vietnam, completely different environment. Mm. People look at it, it's next door, and they think, oh, it looks like a little China. It's got, you know, similar party structure, one labor union, blah, 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 highly productive labor. But actually, it operates in a very different way. And compl- in what way, how is it different? Oh, in all numbers of ways. Yeah. so the one the one I usually like to throw out is Vietnam is essentially the size of one Chinese province. It's about a hundred million people, a large province, but one province. China is divided into thirty something provinces, thirty three, thirty four provinces. So you take one of those, the v- size of Vietnam, Vietnam is divided into about sixty four provinces in and of itself. So power is highly fragmented. Um, It's not nearly as industrialized as China was. It never really went through that industrialization, that that forced, what you call that forced industrialization that Mao took China through, that Stalin took Russia through. And so their industrial base is actually quite weak Mm. compared to to China, right? Um, The level of skills is relatively low. The infrastructure is, it doesn't really compare to China. So, you know, I I tend to say it's kind of like Guangdong province 30 years ago, right? Mm. They will get there but you can't compare it now to China, and just on scale, you can't compare it to China. So, And and it's a very untransparent operating environment, which a lot of our clients have challenges with.
0: So what you're saying is that compli- there's not a one-size-fits-all compliance pattern here. Every market has a different set of compliance based on their level of development, based on their government structures, based on organizational understanding of what risk looks like, okay. and therefore organizations have to adjust accordingly?
1: Yeah, and also based on the jurisdiction that they're operating in, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, people complain a lot about China. I spent a long time in China. And I think actually China is pretty easy to read, for lack of a better word, and it's gotten more complicated, but at the same time slightly more transparent. A place like Vietnam, you know, you have some of those old school practices that, you know, you can imagine happening in in other parts of the world where the tax inspector shows up and it becomes a negotiation. And you might have all of your records showing you paid tax, but it doesn't matter because, and this, is, this has been an issue for a number of, and continues to be an issue for a number of companies in Vietnam, the tax inspector says, no, you owe X. Mm-hmm. And they're there for one reason only, which is ne- to negotiate their payment, essentially, yeah. right?
0: It, you may be the first person I've ever interviewed who said China is relatively easy to read. I'm going to remember that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all relative, right? It's all relative. I mean, you know, We have clients who, because it's so big, obviously, and it's, it's always a topic of discussion, and I'm like, try going to Japan as a foreign company, right? This is not easy, right? They're, they're not set up to make life for a foreign entity easy. Yeah. So I think, relatively speaking, and it's gotten better, You know, China is actually one of the easier jurisdictions when I think about what our clients go through in Indonesia or India or Vietnam or places like that. It's all relative, so.
0: So so returning to this smorgasbord of risks, as we pan and see, you know, what corporations have to contend with uh, day in, day out, month in, month out, um, now enter coronavirus, where does this rank in your uh, 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 estimation in terms of how important or where should this be prioritized versus other uh, risks that they're more commonly Understood and dealt with.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I think here it's where you get into perception versus reality, right? And and a lot of what you do as a corporate is about perception. And so, right now, I think uh, particularly in Asia, since we were at the f- we were at the forefront of this, you know, it, it struck Asia first, and so we're edging toward kind of um, resolution or some kind of more normal pattern ahead of the rest of the world. Uh, you're dealing with perception, right? So you want to demonstrate to your employees, to your vendors, to your stakeholders, to your shareholders, to everybody, that you are taking this seriously and you're doing X, Y, and Z. I personally think that in reality, what this is, is another strain of the flu that goes around every year, that kills tens of thousands of people every year. And there might be slight differences with this one in terms of communicability or something else, but I haven't seen anything in this one that says, it's actually, uh, you know, the lethality rates or anything else are significantly different if you take out, again, take out the Wuhan uh, population. You know, it tends to strike older people uh, in cold climates with pulmonary issues or un- generally unhealthy, but it, it's a, it's like a classic flu. So
0: are you suggesting people are overreacting, the public's overreacting, or the governments are overreacting?
1: So what I would say is that... Uh, populations, and Singapore is actually a good example of this, you know, populations react in many ways to what their government says or doesn't say, again, what they perceive. So when Singapore moved to Code Orange, there was for one weekend panic buying, if you remember, Mm -hmm. and then the Prime Minister came on the following week and said, this is not a panic situation, right? This is what you need to do. And it was a very, very good speech. I don't see that happening in a lot of countries. I don't see it happening in the U.S. as an example, and I and I don't know why that is. But it's a pretty, I would say, it's a pretty simple message to get out there. Is here's what we're doing. Yes, this is a, a, a new thing that we're dealing with, but we're dealing with it, mm-hmm. and don't panic. And you know, here's what we want you to do. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so some governments have been more effective at doing that than others. Um, but I think when in the absence of a message, people fear the worst, yeah. uh, or if they perceive a step or message from the government as indicating that the situation might be much worse. So, for example, when the Federal Reserve cut 50 basis points overnight, that's supposed to be a message. That's supposed to be a sending us a message of um, reassurance. What happened was the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. The market reacted, thinking, "Oh, if they cut 50, percentage, 50 basis points overnight, that must mean the situation's far worse than it actually mm-hmm. is." So, the market plummeted, right? Mm-hmm. So. I think sometimes the messaging from governments have contributed to the feeling that oh this is we should go out and buy just the store shelves clean because you know this is going to be much much worse than it actually mm-hmm. is blah 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 so <clears throat> sometimes they get the messaging wrong sometimes they don't message and people expect the worse but I, I do think that um you know this is something we'll get through mm-hmm. asia will get through it first i think you can I, from everything that i've heard from my clients in china you know they're already starting to see some form of normalcy return, Mm -hmm. Um, and there will be just kind of a a staggered tale of the jurisdictions that return to some form of normal operation based upon when in the cycle they actually experience this.
0: Yeah, Dane, the thing uh, with, and this may be just my impression, but um, you know, unlike a, a, an increase in interest rates or a shift in regulation that a corporation needs to adjust to, this feels like it's far more far-reaching. It, it feels like it touches all aspects of an organization from health and security to supply chains to financial stability, mm-hmm. uh, employ engagement, I mean communications, I mean, there isn't an area of an organization that's not affected by uh, this outbreak. Okay. Um, I guess the big question for me uh, would be um, is it just a short-term response or are there things organizations can and should be doing in order to prepare for the long haul?
1: So that's a great question and you're absolutely right and one of the reasons that it touches all of those elements of an organization is because it's a very personal thing, right? It's, if you have a regulatory investigation it really just affects the corporate entity, and it may involve a few people at the top. Something like this affects everybody, regardless of what type of organization they're in. Um, so in that sense, it's a much more personal issue, right? Um, so beyond kind of what the best practice would be for, for anything like this, this kind of health emergency that we see, you know, corporations doing government, doing schools, doing uh, hospitality, all of that, uh, in terms of increased levels of cleanliness and social distancing and working from home and all of those types of things. Um, I think one of the things we're seeing is supply chain, which we touched on before. So how do we ensure resilience in our supply chain? And if we are impacted, or we think we're going to be impacted because Chinese factories have gone down for six weeks. And it would be hard not to be impacted by that given the size of China in the global economy, particularly the manufacturing economy. And frankly, even from a retail perspective, if you think about how many hotels were closed, how many Starbucks were closed, how many McDonald's were closed, how many airlines have uh, have mothballed half their fleet because you don't have... Travelers from China. You don't have people traveling to China. Huge hit. Huge economic hit. Right in the in the retail consumption space. Um, even in e-commerce, those products have to be delivered somehow. So mm-hmm. if you're not able to deliver the product, fulfill the fulfill the engagement, then that becomes problematic. So that value chain, if you will, I think people are going to reassess that. They already are doing that, and they're thinking, mm-hmm. okay, well. When we looked at the trade from a trade war perspective, US China trade war perspective, we thought tariffs, okay, well, what should we do? Well, we can move part of this to Vietnam. Okay. Then you have entities that are based in Vietnam or Thailand or Malaysia or somewhere else and, you know, free of tariffs. Okay. This is a very different type of thing because Vietnam, particularly northern Vietnam, is tied into China's supply chain. So, if you have a breakdown in that supply chain in China because of a virus or something else, Vietnam is not exempt from that,
0: mm. so, by, by virtue of proximity.
1: By, by virtue of proximity and being tied into their their network, their supply chain. So, what what I see happening is a greater regionalization on the part of the supply chains. So, if you're a European company, you're going to look at Poland and Hungary and Romania and maybe Morocco and say, I'm going to move some of this here so that I can actually be essentially to a certain extent, isolated, more resilient from what might happen in China again. If I'm in North America, I'm gonna be looking at Mexico, and I think this will be one of the biggest beneficiaries, not only of the trade war, but also of this virus, is Mexico and Canada, but particularly Mexico, it's already tied into our supply chains. It's just in time, it's right there on the border. It's actually a very easy uh, jurisdiction for American companies to continue to operate or expand. So I think what's gonna happen is you're gonna see regionalization. So we see a lot of people looking at supply chains, and we see a lot of people looking at recovery, or at least we're talking a lot of people about recovery, because what we learned from SARS was people expected it would go on longer than it did. They cut really deeply in Asia, and and SARS wasn't nearly as global as this is, so it's not always a great comparison. They cut very deeply into their businesses in Asia. Then when recovery came, and it came by kind of June, July of of that year, of 2003, if you recall, they weren't prepared for it. And demand skyrocketed, you know, the catch-up demand, the pent-up demand. I think you'll see the same thing. You'll see it first in Asia because we were the first into this. You'll see it later in other parts of the world. You will probably see it first in China um, because of their economic structure, their command economy, if you will. They have the ability to push resources into the economy, capital as well as other types of resources, in a way that very few economies can, and they have scale. So the Chinese economy today is not even comparable to relate really to the economy in 2003 right it's a third of global growth it's a third of global trade it affects everybody and i think if you're a business in this region or a global business but certainly if you're in this region you're going to be thinking what what is that going to look like when this virus kind of burns itself out as they typically do by may let's say <clears throat> china goes full force to meet a new target a new gdp target uh, starting in June or July, they've got six months to make that target, uh, whatever the new target will be, and and it will just the demand for everything from logistics to spare parts to labor to is going to go off the charts. And how do you how do you deal with that? How do you manage that? Because prices will go up, there'll be shortages, et cetera, et cetera. So, <clears throat> and it won't just happen in China, but I think China is probably the most extreme example of where it can happen. Mm-hmm. So, how do you deal with that from a, a supply chain perspective, a demand perspective, supply mm-hmm. and demand perspective?
0: Yeah, beyond supply chain, I mean, thinking across other aspects of an organization, you mentioned hospitality and others, mm-hmm. the financial hit has been significant. I think during the SARS, uh, numbers vary, but it was about $50 billion in losses is the number I've seen, uh, and about less than 1,000 people, about 770 yeah. died. I mean, this is far more global. It is arriving at pandemic, and therefore the expectation is those uh, financial implications could be even greater. So now there's this catch-up. But you are saying to it, it, something which is kind of interesting, which is, you know, know we could be three or four months away from business as usual back to the way we were what are the possibilities in fact some are suggesting this will be cyclical it'll be annual it's flu season Mm -hmm. now it's coronavirus season what how should organizations prepare for the next round the next hit come 2021
1: yeah that's a great question so I think I think that's absolutely true I don't think this will go away until we have a vaccination for it but even if once that happens that's not to say that something else won't emerge so you know what people have said is okay this will be kind of the fifth strain of annual flu and i i fully believe that that will be true um and and our clients are also preparing for that so we just have to expect you know and I'm, i'm i'm voicing you know their message which is that yes this will come back around it won't necessarily be as severe there will be i think some precautions that will stay in place if you remember after sars it was similar I think this time what will happen is you'll have precautions, whether it's temperature screening or whatever, that will stay in place much longer. I think that's a new normal. Uh, somebody at last night was comparing it to after 9-11, the security procedures that were put in place. I think this, this will be an equivalent of that, right? Mm-hmm. Cleanliness procedures, monitoring procedures, I think that will be a new normal. And I think that, generally speaking, is a good thing. Uh, because you again you might defeat this one but there will be another one that comes along in some other form. Yeah. So I think yes, you do have to plan that this will come back and what does that look like? It might not be as severe next year, but the following year it might be as severe or more severe, you don't know. So I think people will have to start to put that into their into their business plans. And I think that's wise to do that.
0: Well just to use one example, you've referenced supply chains. Does this mean an increase in inventory, stockpiling?
1: I don't know if it means an increase in inventory. I think it does mean an increase in, whether you want to call it resilience or sustainability. So that does that mean you have a warm site somewhere mm. that you can ramp up if necessary? Do you build redundancy into your supply chain? I think that absolutely will happen. Um, and I think that's, again, that's it's a cost. So there will be a, a knock-on cost of this, not just the immediate cost of this. There will be knock-on cost because in, in, in many respects, the price of goods will be impacted. But again, the price of goods has been relatively speaking low, at historic lows almost. And again, that part of that's the China factor for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, every central bank pretty much in the world wants inflation. So, so you know, this is one, one possibly one small step of getting there because so we now realize that, okay, just in time, the leanest of supply chains, well, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it fails you. So you might have to have more redundancy built in, and that's an added cost. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. Some industries or some sectors uh, with, with the manufacturing sector, you know, that pent-up demand can be caught up to a certain extent. With F&B, you don't kind of go into your neighborhood coffee shop that you haven't been able to go to, to go to for three months and suddenly order three months of coffee, right? Those guys don't catch up in the same way. Yeah. Hospitality is somewhere, I would say, probably somewhere in the middle. I'm not an expert on you but know, I would think that, okay, all those meetings that were postponed, all those seminars, all the conferences, all that business travel that was postponed, that's going to come back. And there will be some element of ketchup there, not probably as much as you can do in, in, in manufacturing, but it will be probably better than maybe a, a, a B2C type business like a coffee shop to mm. be to. You know.
0: Dane, isn't this a perfect opportunity for a bit of corporate reflection uh, isn't this the moment when people aren't traveling, they're sitting together as leadership teams and saying to themselves, well, it's just one more crisis and let's come up with a short-term solution or is it a moment and an opportunity to say, let's fundamentally rethink our business. How we operate, how we function, how we deal with our employees, how we engage with our customers. There is all this, this rise in recent months of uh, you know the idea of corporate profitability and purpose, can they coexist? Will these ideas be Sidelined while people scramble to make up and, and, and create a financial gain.
1: I mean, it's a great idea, and this reflection—the idea of reflection—what what kind of corporate entity do we want to be—is um, probably a question that's overdue at many institutions. Um, I'm probably a pessimist when it comes to corporate change driven internally, as opposed to as opposed to that type that's driven by regulation, but. It would be very nice to see corporations, as you said, take this time and say, okay, this is a crisis. Crisis reveals your character. So what type of leadership, what type of corporation, what type of entity, what type of individuals do we want to be in a crisis? It's easy to be uh, a thought leader, uh, uh, look like a good guy, be magnanimous, etc., in good times. Mm. It's in bad times that that really reveals the character of the institution or the organization or the individual, including political leaders. <laughs> so." What do we want to be? And are we going to shortchange, to your comment, are we going to shortchange our sustainability goals, our ESG goals, our governance, which is, as I say, I steal this um, openly from one of my colleagues in the U.S. Compliance is what you must do by law or regulation. Governance is what you ought to do. That's really hard for corporate organizations because, of course, they're, particularly in the U.S., they're always focused on the bottom line. It's the nature of our system. Are you really going to invest to be a different type of organization for the future in a time of crisis when everybody's counting their pennies? You have competitors maybe going under or struggling. You see an opportunity for m All of those things are coming at you from your stakeholders, your shareholders. Are you really going to continue or going to you know invest in that process of being a better entity of leading by example? That's a great question, and I hope it's one that. At least some organizations will as you said reflect upon you may have to change your business model i mean we've seen that anyway disruption in almost every sector that you can think of Mm -hmm. enabled by technology um but not always just technology traditional business models being disruptive disrupted um so they should be thinking about probably changing structure (laughs) in some way anyway or change the business model in some way anyway the question is do you change it kind of quote unquote for the better right uh or or Are you really just focused on that that bottom line? And I think in times of crisis or tough economic times, it's hard to get corporate entities to focus on on something beyond the bottom line.
0: Is coronavirus threat a topic for the boardroom, or should it reside within the operational or the leadership team uh, in an organization?
1: No, it's, it's absolutely got to be for the boardroom. Yeah. Uh, like any, like cyber, like uh, any of these, uh, cl- climate change, right? All of these issues that we see, our chairperson says, you know, the, the, the ones that they're constantly dealing with that really no organization has a full grasp of is the digital or cyber threat environment, right? And what do they do about those things? Because there are there are no easy, clear answers, but this one is of such a, Uh, global uh, nature and such a disruptive nature that absolutely it's one for the for the boardroom like like any serious crisis would be
0: Mm. one last question Uh, what are the legal obligations that corporations have to their employees or their suppliers in a time of coronavirus so that's
1: a great question and it was actually brought up first really as a result not with not with employees but with suppliers by in the energy sector where you saw China taking the lead in claiming force majeure against uh, energy contracts from the Middle East particularly. Um, But you've seen it in a whole number of industries where, okay, we have a contract, what are the terms of this contract, what does it say about kind of acts of God, for lack of a a better word, right? Disruption to supply, fulfillment of supply, et cetera, et cetera. So it will vary by industry, it will also, of course, vary by jurisdiction. But then I get back to, again, that's that's in the legal space. That's in the compliance space. Mm. So you may be fulfilling the letter of the contract or not. You might find an escape clause there. Or you've you've created it. And I've heard of this in several industries now. People have found ways around whatever the contract was worded. And they're claiming this virus as a reason not to fulfill the contract. Mm. I think there's two problems with that. One is back to the governance comment. So what you must do versus what you ought to do. That's one thing, which is kind of an ethical argument, for lack of a better word. But it's connected to the second one. And the second one is, and this is particularly true in Asia, people have long memories. Um, Countries, some countries have long memories, not the United States, but Asian countries particularly have long memories. If you leave in a crisis, if you leave in a bad way, if you don't fulfill that contract, if you wiggle out of it, again, part of this is perception, we tend to approach things, in, particularly in North America, in a very legalistic sense. Well, the contract says X, and I found a clever way around that. Therefore, I'm fully justified. Mm. In this part of the world, the contract is actually much less important than the relationship. Mm. And if you kind of cut and run, for lack of a better word, or you're perceived to have taken a loophole, taken the easy way out, not fulfilled because you uh, lawyered, lawyered your way through it, if you will, <clears throat> people remember that. And clients remember that, suppliers remember that, and so that is also a part of sustainability, and it's also governance.
0: So, so your advice would be not to invoke force majeure, but to actually try to work it out, come up with some constructive way on uh, engaging, remaining engaged without compromising your business.
1: So, I'm I'm not going to give. I'm not qualified to give legal advice. I know you're trying to put me in that position of saying you should or should not invoke force majeure. I can't. I can't. You know, uh, opine on that what I can say and what we have said to our clients is you may have an argument, a legal argument for that. But remember those two things that I just said, the governance issue and the long memories. And then there's another thing which is, and this is particularly true in the case of China and the energy space, is where does the leverage sit? So the, the legal leverage may sit on your side as a supplier because your contract may cover that. But if China is your biggest customer, are you really gonna take that to them and say, no, actually we don't accept that, because where are they going to buy from next time? (laughs) And again, that gets back to my comment about long memories, right? So regardless of what the legality is, there is always in any any, any, any relationship, any negotiation, a balance of power. And if that power sits on the opposite side, then you really have to think about, you know, how is that going to affect my business in the future, apart from just the governance issues and that type of thing.
0: Dane, you are a risk diva, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and we will be speaking more in the weeks and months to come. Uh, so appreciate your time and thanks for sharing with us your thoughts and and uh, some of the observations as you move around the region. Well, thank you, Steve. I'm a big fan. Thank you. That was my conversation with Dane Chamorro, a longtime Asia veteran and consummate expert on organizational risk. So it is in this week's Asia Insider Minute, we consider risk and the influence it has on organizations planning for the future. Out of curiosity, I googled business books with risk in the title. I was awash in results. Daunting titles like this one, Against the Gods, the Remarkable Story of Risk by Peter Bernstein, Risk Takers by John Martinson. Of course, there were more austere titles like Principles of Risk Management, which nevertheless featured a man hanging one arm from the side of a cliff you get the picture. Risk equals danger. But let's revision this. Risk equals opportunity. And that's just my point in the discussion with Dane. Our personal or organizational response to a crisis need not be all that different. In the near term, we care for our health the way a corporation cares for the well-being of its customers and employees. In the case of the coronavirus, we take precautions that include washing our hands, social distancing, and paying greater attention to general hygiene. Companies are carrying out similar safeguards. But what about the longer term? There's evidence to suggest that COVID-19 will be around not for months, but for years to come. While it's still somewhat early in the outbreak to say for sure, epidemiologists are predicting widespread contraction on a global scale. If not this season, then next. This gives way to two possible responses, fear or vigilance. Fear gets us nowhere. It breeds anxiety and mistrust. And we also know that the emotional response triggers a suppression of our immune system. Vigilance holds greater promise. For the individual, that means paying renewed attention to our physical countenance. Are we staying physically fit, eating well, supplementing our diets with vitamins, using breath work or a form of mindfulness to stay calm and boost the immune system? The question isn't so much if we get it, but when we get it and optimizing our health is the first best line of defense. The same goes for corporations. Dane says that crisis reveals one's character. So this time around, I ask what are organizations prepared to do to bolster their policies, practices and organizational protocols? Is it enough to tell employees to work from home until further notice? Are temperature checks in the lobby going to do the trick? It's a start, but clearly it's not enough. We can choose to simply survive a crisis or to instead invest in a strategy to face what most surely will come next. Corporate health has less to do with barring the doors and waiting for the storm to pass, and more to do with an organization's physiological well-being. From the boardroom down, this is the time to scan the body corporate. It's about restoring fiscal and operational health, building commercial resiliency, trimming the bottom line flab, boosting operational immunity. It's about vigilance at a time when corporate purpose is in dire need of an overhaul. When we all emerge from this crisis, and we will, I ask you this, isn't it better to be prepared and fully equipped in a world that will have forever changed? That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. Tell us what you think. Send us your thoughts. Rate and comment on this episode wherever you download and listen to your podcasts, or visit us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Don't have time to listen, but want a quick synopsis of our discussion? Then sign up for the Inside Asia newsletter by visiting us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, then start receiving our weekly update. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, "Coming in from the outside on Inside Asia.